Please follow along as I read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, <clears throat> I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God, in his wisdom, saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it is foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. But to those who call, <clears throat> but to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters that few of you are wise in the world's eyes, or powerful or wealthy, when God, called, when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise, and he chose things that are powerless to shame those who think they are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. Thanks be to God for the reading of his holy word. Thanks, Mark. Well, we finished our study of the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we're now in the season of Lent leading up to Easter. And it's a time when we focus on the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thought for the next couple of weeks, we do some what I would call standalone messages rather than a series. Uh, focusing our attention on the cross. Uh, today we'll look at 1 Corinthians 1.18, and then next week we'll look at the significance of the cross and the impact that it makes. The following Sunday is Palm Sunday, and we'll look at the last week of Jesus' life, and then we're into resurrection on Easter Sunday. It's appropriate, I think, that we consider the cross and as it is described for us in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 18-31 today, because at the end of this week, we turn the calendar to April, and April 1 is what we know as what? April Fool's Day. And if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, and then on even into chapters 3 and 4, you'll discover that at least 10 times there's made reference to foolishness. The cross for those who perish is foolish. And uh, this 
certainly is uh, appropriate that we think about the cross in light of that, that word. Uh, April is first is the day when we play jokes on one another and uh, try to get them to believe something that is not actually true. Uh, for example, you might say, I've, you have dirt on your face. And uh, you believe it and start wiping your face. And then we say, April Fools. Um, Mark Twain said uh, that uh, April 1st, April Fool's Day, is the day that reminds us of what we are the, three, uh, the other 364 days of the year. The Apostle Paul in this text writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. There are many people that believe something that isn't true and act accordingly. Jesus told several stories when he was on this earth about foolish people. He told the story about the successful farmer who had more grain than he knew what to do with. And so he built bigger barns to store his grain. And Jesus said to him, you fool. Tonight, your soul will be required of you. He believed several things that were not true. He believed that life would go on indefinitely. He believed that he could amass a fortune and keep it for a securely on the earth. And he believed that life consisted in the abundance of his material possessions. When it comes to the cross, the Apostle Paul says that there are some people who look at it and see it as foolish, but they're mistaken. And so this morning, we want to spend several moments just thinking about the cross and looking at the text that we have before us this morning. First of all, as it begins in verse 18, there's an introductory statement. Paul writes, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. God's plan is considered foolish by many. The reference to foolishness comes at least 10 times in the text and in the first four chapters. This statement comes off of the words that Paul writes uh, to the Corinthians, uh, lining them up behind the message of their favorite teacher. This is kind of interesting. This was something I hadn't seen before. If you look at the text, it's verse 18 begins with the preposition for. And that means that it's tied to what is before it. And if you look back in the text, you look back, say, to about verse 10 and following. Uh, well, let's go back to verse 12. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And essentially what Paul is saying in this context is that the people in Corinth had decided that it was more important the character of the messenger than the message. And so Paul says, wait a minute here. We've got our focus messed up. The focus ought not to be on the messenger. Who is this guy who's telling you these messages? The focus is on the message itself, which is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ on the cross. To see how that plays out, you have to flip to the next chapter, chapter 3, for example. And at the end of chapter 3, he says, Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he might be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. 
as it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. Then verse 21, so then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Keep the focus where it belongs. Keep the focus on Christ and the cross rather than on the people who are bringing you the message. Then as you move on in verse uh, chapter 4, he makes another reference. Verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings and that without us. I wish that were really uh, had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. He's really challenging them here to say, wait a minute, don't be so concerned about the person who is bringing you the message, keep your eyes on the cross and on the person of Jesus Christ. When the word of the cross is proclaimed, it has an effect one way or the other. It's never neutral. There are two contrasting reactions, he says, in this introductory statement. It pushes some people along the path toward deliverance and restoration and it pushes others further down the path of destruction and ruin. Randy Freeze says about this, some people get it, and some people don't. This verse introduces these two reactions to the message of the cross, which will be elaborated in the rest of the passage as we go forward. And it elaborates it by contrasting two thoughts. The foolishness, which is the Greek noun moron, and dynamic, which is a dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite. The cross is dynamite, worldly wisdom is moronish. That's the contrast he makes along the way. Then as you move on to the 19th verse, there's an Old Testament, a Testament illustration that the Apostle Paul uses to explain how God's wisdom is wiser than man's wisdom. The context of the, te of the verse is I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. And the context of that in the Old Testament is that the nation of Judah had been attacked and was being attacked by Assyria on its northern borders. And all of the statesmen and the politicians, including King Hezekiah, were trying to find out a way uh, to defend themselves, including making a defense treaty with Egypt, even though the Lord told them not to. And the Lord said, I will defend you. And then as you move on in the book of Isaiah in chapter 37, it goes on to record how the Lord sent the angel of death and destroyed 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And the point that Paul is making is, look, oftentimes we can make plans. 
we can think that we know how to figure it out. We've got the wisdom to defend ourselves as they did back in the day of Isaiah and the time in the nation of Judah. But what happens is God has a better plan. God's plan is able to deliver in ways that we are not able to think about. He says, my ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The plan of salvation is something we would have never thought of. And so he moves on and he creates a series of rhetorical questions in verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I like the way the New Living Translation that Mark read for us this morning uh, translates it. So where does this leave us? The, where does this leave the philosophers and the scholars and the world's brilliant debaters? As God, made them, God has made them look foolish and has shown their wisdom to be useless nonsense. As you go back to the context, it's not the messenger. It's the message. <laughs> the thought that goes through my mind is not the messenger. It's the message, stupid. <laughs> That's kind of what he's saying here. Paul is saying that the cross of Christ changes our normal approach to wisdom. That is not to say that we should be blindly foolish. True wisdom is still wisdom and bad folly is still folly. But what Paul is saying here is that for the Christian, the cross has redefined what it means to be wise, what it means to be strong, what it means to be safe, what it means to be healthy, what it means to be faithful, what it means to be loving. It has turned our world upside down and we see things in a new way because of understanding God's plan is so much wiser than ours. What is the way that we know God? Reason and research are not able to bring that knowledge of God. It comes through faith in the foolishness of what is preached, the cross. The cross is pure foolishness from a rational point of view. It's nonsense and ridiculous for, a, 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 for God to go about saving men in the way he did from a worldly perspective. It seems foolish for someone to have the power to destroy his enemies and then letting them destroy him. It seems foolish to volunteer for a job that means certain death. It's foolish to have an eloquent defense, but not to open your mouth. It seems foolish to be God and let humankind push you around. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said it this way, Remove from Christianity its ability to shock and to all gather, uh, and it's altogether destroyed. It then becomes a tiny, superficial thing, capable of neither inflicting deep wounds or of healing them. Christianity is not reasonable. 
in the way that the world counts reasonableness and should not be made to sound reasonable. It is revolutionary. It is radical. And that's why the world rejects it. It stands apart from all that the world has to offer. The concluding statement translation in the message goes like this. God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust in him into the way of salvation. Verses 22 through 25, Paul continues by discussing why some people don't get it. He describes two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks, representing the religious orthodox and the secularists. And in a way, these two categories are irrelevant in light of the larger categorization that Paul is making here as he's discussing these issues. Those who are on the road to destruction and those who are on the road to wholeness. What are the reasons some people don't get it when it comes to the cross? Well, first of all, they're not looking for it. They're looking for something else. It says the Jews were looking for signs and miracles that would authenticate who Jesus was. That he could overthrow the Roman tyranny. That's what they were looking for. We can have all the knowledge in the world in our hands. As you have right here. All the knowledge of the world in your hands. But yet, it's interesting that when a university in Seattle offered a seminar to explore the meaning of life, it was overrun with people wanting to register. We don't make sense of the meaning of life. We don't understand all of it by simply looking up on Google. The cross, as he says in verse 25, is both power and wisdom. Very interesting that he uses these two words, power. It displays, first of all, God's wisdom to redeem sinful humanity without compromising God's holiness and his righteous character. But it also shows God's power to transform individuals. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That's why Paul says in his letter to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. All of this leads to his conclusion in verses 26 through the end of the chapter where he talks about the fact that God's calling eliminates our capacity to boast. Pride often keeps us from seeing the value of the cross. We want to be self-sufficient. We don't want to humble ourselves in the sight of God. What is it? What kind of people does God call? It says in the text, but he chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose uh, the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ. Verse 26, 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. What kind of people does God call? In the early church, the sentiment was very clear. Celsius was an opponent of the Christian faith. But as he observed the Christian community in his day, he said, we see them in their houses and uh, wool dressers, cobblers, fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar of persons, like a swarm of bats and ants creeping out of their nests or frogs holding symposiums around a swamp of wor or worms in a conventicle in a corner of, a mi of mind. Not very many influential were a part of that early church. But Paul is not here making a sociological statement of who can be a part of the kingdom of God. He's making a theological statement, a statement that as we humble ourselves and acknowledge our need of forgiveness, our need of cleansing, our need of, uh, of redemption, and go to the cross, we will discover that Christ is able to receive us. And as it says, not many of you were wise. Not many of you were noble. In saying not many, Paul is well aware that some of their number were in fact well off from human, by human standards. For example, Crispus, Gaius, Erastus, Stephanus. These were people of stature and of wealth. Paul's point here is not to do a sociolo uh, sociological analysis of, the, analysis of the church, but to make a theological point. He points that being called of God comes to those who will humble themselves in the sight of God and bow at the foot of the cross. The text, we know, whosoever will may come. There was a very wealthy lady, a Selena Hastings, Countess of Huntington, who inherited a lot of money and began to distribute it in a variety of ways to, in philanthropy. But she once told John Wesley that she had been saved by an M. Wesley was puzzled. He wanted to know what she meant by that. Well, she says from 1 Corinthians 1.26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many were wise. The M, if it were not there, would say, not any were called. And she said, because the M is there, I qualify as one who can experience the, convert, the, the work of God in my life. People who are nobodies, people who are somebodies, become somebody because of the work of the cross and the calling of God. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. We become part of God's forever family. We have the privilege of experiencing God's threefold blessing. As he says in this text, we are given Christ and his wisdom, and because of that, we experience righteousness, holiness, and redemption. That's God's wisdom. 
the wisdom of the cross. We can't boast. We can't pick favorite teachers and say, okay, that one's better than this one. We need to focus our attention upon the cross of Christ and recognize that this is the foundation on which we build our life. The forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, the good news that you died to forgive us of our sins, to set us free, to give us righteousness, holiness, redemption, salvation. And we give you thanks that uh, you have done that for us. And as we come to you, we experience your your joy, your love, and a, a new life where we have the hope of eternal life. So it's in your name we pray. Amen.